grateful. Help us, each of us, hold ourselves accountable to your word. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Um, last night was an unusual night. I was up till midnight because Kyle. But it wasn't just Kyle. Emily was there too and some, some other. Jack was there and various other people. But we'd had a little session where they had asked for, what is the weird view you have about the end times? I said, okay. A little presentation early in the evening and we were talking Bible until midnight. Lots of topics come up. And when you're a pastor, you just told Kyle Friday that the way you come up with a sermon was who, what kind of conversations you were in. I had so many topics racketing about in my head when I woke up this morning. So I ignored them all. And I was just thumbing through, uh, well, Leslie had, had a chat with me earlier this week when we were in Walla Walla. And we talked about, you know, the, the portions of the scripture when you don't get into them preaching-wise, like history books in the Old Testament, which has some great points, but they don't, they're not a, a raft of great, you don't want to make theology out of narrative. Uh, they've got good lessons. So I was thinking about that earlier in the week, and then, so I was just thumbing through the Old Testament in my Bible, either of a mind of its own. I, I'm not one of those people who believes you just open the Bible to get directions, you know, um, about which Ford or Chevy you buy. But I opened to Exodus 22, to a verse that has been on my mind for oh, quite a few years. You shall not revile God. This is 22, 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And I was looking at that verse. Oh, yeah, I remember that verse. Paul quotes it in Acts. I said to myself, you know, it seemed like it was kind of important to Paul. A few, couple weeks ago, I was at a wedding. I was standing right here. And my daughter was getting married, the groom. And I was going to give a charge to the groom. And the charge I gave was out of Luke on the centurion requesting the Lord heal his servant. And he was saying, I am one set under authority. I have others set under me. Just say the word. Christ said, no greater faith have I found in Israel. And I told Ben, who married my daughter, I said, the thing you need to learn is that you're under authority. Don't be some rat bastard Christian husband, you know, pounding your chest with your self-importance in the home. You better show your wife, show your kids you are under authority. You know how to bow your knee to those above you. So that was on my mind. My wife's remark by the Old Testament, my remarks to Ben about finding those things above you. And what was interesting, I, I, I didn't know this would expand from this one verse, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. 
And you might be wondering why is, is this a big deal, Evan? Are you that, it's the bottom of the barrel lying right there and you're just scraping around in it looking for something to say on a Sunday morning. And it turns out the apostles have a very strong view about that. So a very strong view, that the very fact that it's a strong view and discussed at length and warned about at length that we should all of us remember Exodus 22:28. Here on the left-hand side, the Acts 23 passage, and Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those that stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God shall strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. As for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Quoting Exodus 22:28. Paul backs away from a reprimand he gave in the heat of you know, a moment where an injustice was being done him. And even though it was injustice, it stated injustice. Yet he would be commanded to be struck. He violated the law unknowing that he did not know it was a, the high priest he was speaking of. Now, the reason I'm saying this is a big deal for the apostles, and maybe in America should be a big deal for you, for us all. Because right there, right under that Acts passage, they see Exodus 22, 28. The same passage on the top of the right-hand side. Repeated, but this out of the Septuagint. You shall not revile the gods, nor speak ill of the ruler of your people. That's the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it's not actually far removed from the Hebrew that I read to you. Because the word is not the name of God. It does not say you shall not revile Yahweh. It says you shall not revile Elohim, which is the plural of God. Sometimes it refers to the one true God, and other times it refers to the gods. So the, the two passages agree, the Septuagint and the Hebrew. Both are saying, don't revile the gods. Paul applied it in Acts to, or speak ill of a rule of your people. That's not what is carried through with importance. You can have other discussions, and I know during this time of the plague, the plague years, and you wanted to go deck a city council person or um, at, least, at least speak ill of them, Christians were discussing our right response to the powers, the political powers. Have that discussion on your own time. We're talking about not speaking, blaspheming, reviling the gods. Now, right under that Septuagint, I have Josephus in his Antiquities gives an accounting of Jewish law. You know, it's via, it's a paraphrase via Josephus, it's not Bible, but he relates this law this way. Let no one blaspheme those gods which other cities esteem such. Nor may anyone steal what belongs to strange temples, nor take away the gifts that are dedicated to any god. 
His understanding of the Jewish law regarding Exodus 22 was, you don't mess with the other gods. You don't mess with the other gods. He repeats this. I don't know if you're how familiar are with uh, Josephus. He has an essay called Against Appian, which was a, um, an apologetic for uh, the Jews. And in the second book of the, uh, Against Appian, he refers to this law again, that we're not allowed to speak ill. You know, he said, people are always speaking ill of Yahweh, but we are not allowed to speak ill of any other god. The next passage down on the right, left-hand side is Acts 23. A little later in the same chapter. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? I take it you're not of this religion. Seeing then that these things cannot be contradicted, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Paul knows this passage. You shall not revile the gods nor curse a ruler of your people. He apologizes in the midst of conflict with somebody who is been unjust to him, he still apologizes because he has to obey it. The first half of the verse, he is also out there obeying in a circumstance where his preaching had undone an awful lot of the idolatry. People were burning their magical books in Ephesus, and the silversmith business was going into a, a downturn because of the power of the gospel, but not the power of the gospel to blaspheme the goddess Artemis. Not the power of the Christians to go to war with the other religions. I know they're wrong. I know they're false deities or they're either made up or they're disobedient or they're, you know, foolishly worshipped by, by human beings. Whatever the case, it's not our business. We are told to have a reverence, have a reverence for them. Now you say, Evan, aren't you going a little, a little far? Remember, I'm, 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 I'm hanging this on the centurion's ability to be under authority. We as Americans are not always following, we're not always following um, Christianity. We're following our Americanness. And no, no objection to Americanness, but sometimes it does get in the way of being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because individualism, and I'm a big proponent that the nature and the, uh, the, the center of all things is the individual sentient mind, the will that bows the knee to God or to the self. The problem with the self, that kind of individualism says, I am the God of me, rather than God is the God of me. We have a unique susceptibility to having it our way, wanting it the way we want it. And the warnings, I've only covered the first verse on the right-hand side. This is going to be a long morning. 
No, I will go through it pretty fast. But the rest of that text is about this to let you know how important this is to the apostles. That we might wish to think on it, not, not about the you know, political theory, not about what do you have to submit in regarding law, but what should you feel, think, do regarding the gods? I've told various people this over the years. We're not monotheists. Now, most <laughs> tragically, most evangelicals are not monotheists because they're polytheists. Uh, God is a committee. There's Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the God the Father. And well, I think Brendan was saying the other day, tritheists. You know, not Trinitarians, but tritheists. They never really think about one God. But in proper theology, the belief in only one God is monotheism. But we've got a responsibility here, because of the law, because of the apostolic importance put on it, to recognize that monotheism, actually you're what's called a monolatrist. And a monolatrist is the worship of one God. That's what we are. Monotheism is denial of all gods but one. There's only one God. But these honorifics, this responsibility to not revile the gods is not because it would hurt the feelings of the Mormon or hurt the feelings of the of the of the Hindu that you met on campus in his false belief in the pantheon of gods in Hinduism, which is a pretty creepy and pretty pagan pantheon. It's not because it would offend somebody, because it would offend the God, and it's above your station. Now, now that you're weirded out, and you're thinking about where can we get some wood? Let's look at 1st, 2nd Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Sounds pretty bad. And many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled. And in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. From of old, their condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. Sounds a pretty big wind-up for the Apostle Peter. For if, he's always going to say, if, how God works in these situations, did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, I don't know, miraculously turned to red on my page, I cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven other persons when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, 
he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were to be ungodly. Notice that pattern. If God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ancient world, if he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. That's a good The Lord knows how to rest the godly from trial and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, this is where we get to the point. You say, well, that's just as uh, uh, usual wind-up about sin, right? We don't want sinful false teachers. But he says, you know, it's especially about, verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Look how that's described. Bold and willful, they are not afraid to revile the glorious ones. You shall not revile the gods. They are not afraid to revile the glorious ones. I mean, this is two paragraphs thus far of St. Peter going, you know, ballistic using the most intensified language. When he says hell there, he says the word Tartarus, which is the pit in Hades that the, that the Titans were locked up in. Titans or giants, I'm forget which. Greek mythology. Turn Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. It's like you saying, we're going to take whatever city and turn it to glass. Nuke it to glass. In my military, well, it was my, after my military days, I was talking to a sergeant uh, in, from the army, and he was saying, he's got to nuke uh, Iraq and strap fat back to our feet and go skating. I said, so kind of a, a, a vivid picture of what you would do to someplace. Turn it to glass. Here, God turned these cities to ashes didn't concern himself. This is, he's, he's got a head of steam up about how bad these false teachers are, what damage they're doing. And he says, this is especially for those who revile the glorious ones. Sexually immoral and reviling the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, now, I don't know if you notice when things, when, a, when an apostle settles into a topic. He didn't just say, revile the glorious ones. He then talks about reviling the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power than you, than the false teacher, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. Okay? But this morning, Kyle gave me a helpful tip the other day. He said, uh, when you preach, do you have a point? I was hurt. Of course I have a point. It's just a mystery, my children. Well, I said, okay, I better learn how to make the point. Make the point clear, not just 
leave it hanging out there in, on your Bible in the page and where you go back and read it. But Here's the point. That our concern and recognition of the cosmos and the powers that are there have obligations on the believer that will help you in your Christian life. And your failure to recognize them, your failure, not, we're not asking you to worship other gods. You just say, I know that I'm not supposed to revile the gods because false teachers, when people, you might say, shuck themselves of any kind of authority above them, what are they making room for? They're making room for themselves. Because look, at, I, I centered this. I broke the next few sentences up into bite-sized chunks so I could center it so each one would hang out there by itself. But these, like irrational animals... When you do not protect the glorious ones to the reverence they deserve and you do not keep your heart right about them, one, you will never apologize to the high priest for talking smack to him. You'll never walk through Ephesus. You still, a riot still occurred, but it was a lie about what had occurred. They, they hadn't blasphemed the goddess. They weren't there to blaspheme Artemis. They were there to preach Jesus Christ. We want to be these kind of people that have learned that we're, you might say, practiced at the courtesy of human souls. We are low on the creation rank. I think we're the direction of creation. I think God wanted man to be the object for which creation was made for. But those of us who cast off those things above us are irrational animals, creatures of instinct. That's one of the dangers of this, is that when you are the one directing your life and you do not reverence those above you, whether earthly or heavenly, you are controlled by what you have available, which is your urge. Born to be caught and killed. <laughs> this is not what you'd call a very, uh, this is a triggering passage of, uh, what do the apostles think of you? Well, I think he thinks you're an animal and should be hunted down like a dog. Born, that's what he's saying, right? Born to be caught and killed. They have lost their human value in this, knowing where you stand in the cosmos, having the right response, the one God commanded in the law, that the apostles obeyed, and then the apostles taught on how bad the circumstance was in the people who would not reverence the glorious ones, but revile them. I remember when I first learned this decades ago, I suddenly remembered the years I sang, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack in Sunday school. Well, that's the devil, Evan. Oh, let's look over to the left-hand side for Jude 8. Yet in like manner, this is another person writing in the Bible, in case you're unfamiliar with Jude. Yet in like manner, these men in their dreamings defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. 
Okay? But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Look at that. Whereas angels, back in verse 11, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce reviling judgment. Peter's probably thinking of the same passage. It's in the uh, pseudepigrapha of the assumption of Moses. Um, even Satan, even the archangel Michael, who had a war with Satan, if you remember that from Revelation, spoke respectfully to the devil, honoring his glorious state because he is. So I shouldn't be singing, clasping my pudgy hands together, running around Sunday school, that the devil doesn't like it. He can sit on attack. But these men revile what they do not understand. You look back at the creatures of instinct on the, on the Peter passage, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they are ignorant. Now, as a pastor sitting with your morning coffee, trying to prepare a sermon. You're looking for tips from the text. And I, I always feel I have to tell you this so you don't think I'm that uncool that I would do this, would not tell you. My eye naturally goes to the alliterative elements. There is instinct. It begins with an I. Ignorance, it also begins with an I. And you can believe me about this point. I'm looking for another I later in the passage. And lo and behold. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable. There I go. For sin. I got the three eyes. Now you will not you hopefully will remember, Kyle, that's the point. This is, uh, these, these people, they're instinctual, they are ignorant, and they're insatiable. Now, what kind of Christian ministry you would see, this kind of false prophecy, and I think Joseph Smith did this in Mormonism, he was insatiable for sin. He was ignorant, yet it was obvious from what he wrote. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Paul and Jude, I mean Peter and Jude, both are lecturing us about the state of false teaching in the Christian church that is recognizable by immorality sexually, greed, and reviling the glorious ones. Do you have a place? You, you know greed's wrong, right? You do, you do do that. And sleeping around, that is also wrong. None of that. But you haven't even started, started thinking about, is my cosmology up to speed? Do, do I... Do I have the right reverence? I've mentioned this before, but there's that great portion in Paralandra where when uh, 
Ransom is chasing the unmanned through the caverns at the near the end of the book. And he looks down through levels and levels into the center of Venus. And there is a chariot being dragged by huge beetles, monstrous beetles. And on the chariot stands a god. And we never find out who that is, what he's doing. But Lewis says, wouldn't it be nice if we could recognize these things? In our world, not just on Venus. And it's not, you know, you've got, you got to watch out for these things because this is where idolatry comes in, right? You don't have to have a temptation to badmouth Satan. You think you're almost free to do that, but if someone did, you say, well, show some reverence. Don't speak ill of Satan. You don't want the danger of bowing down to Apollo because you reverenced Apollo too much. But you have to admit that the apostles think this is a big deal. It's a definite tell in false teaching. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A dumbass. Yes, that's in the Bible. Spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. When you don't have an understanding of what it is to reverence those above you, even because they're above you, let's, can I be frank with you a little bit? Just open up, be a little transparent. You know, a lot of wives struggle, and you might want to hit me with something afterwards, with that whole submission thing, right? Because sometimes your husband's just an abject loser. We sometimes we're not that smart. But that's when you're supposed to, right? And it's not because he's right, not because he's wise, and not because he won the argument. It's because he's higher than you. Just that. He's practice these words. My father always says, he told my daughter before she got married, stand against the wall, look at the wall, and say, yes, sir, until it comes natural. Because that's what you're going to be saying to a wall, your husband, who may get everything wrong, and you're going to say, yes, sir. And that was we learned in the military. Is, sir, yes, sir, in the military. you got to bracket that with two sirs. They're greater than you. Our commanding officers were largely, you know, retarded. But oddly enough, I was standing at Ramrod Stiff Strait saying, sir, yes, sir, at the top of my lungs, snapping off polite salutes. Rebecca was a Navy wife. You know, the, I'm sure that saluting was normal in the household. Because we don't understand that the presence of greater infects your spirituality. Some of the things we are asked to do that we are waiting to be convinced as individual souls 
There's a good reason for me to submit. No, they're better than you. The gods are better than you. Not morally better. They may be awful gods. But they're gods. You're a people. And we'd like to scrub our cosmos of all these greater beings. Maybe leave kind of a platonic god up there at the top that I you know, like to read what he says that I like to read. But then I can do what I instinctually want to do. I'll stay ignorant. Right? Reviling in matters of which they are ignorant. You stopped and say what? When you stop and say... I don't know what's going on here, Evan. This just sounds weird. That's kind of... We're filling in the blank of not knowing. We're moderns. We're enlightenment thinkers. Every man has his own inalienable rights. And we insist on those. The gods have rights. You're violating them. And even the ones that are wicked, even Satan, you do not revile. Because angels who are higher than you wouldn't do it. Why are you doing it? I don't think you have a portion of your day that is about reviling Satan. But the absence of a knowledge of this, with the absence of, of how important this becomes, that whole passage from the top of the uh, second chapter of Peter all the way to the end of the chapter, it's about this. These people, these teachers, these kinds of things. Jude echoing the same thing. Casting up the foam of their own shame, it says. Reviling what they do not understand. This is a big deal. In a world, we're barely hanging on to our souls, spirits, our God. They want to turn Christianity, the non-Christians, okay, you can join this club if you want, but just don't insist that it's really there, that the God is really there. You can pretend he is. And how far will we go? We've been denied, been denied by these false teachers who've taken over the world. Who are creatures of instinct now? Reviling in matters of which they are ignorant? And they become insatiable. When you realize that all your happiness is rests on whether or not you get what you want, your instinctual urges, you want a lot of it. Did I tell you about the, the Trans Am I saw in our neighborhood? There's a number of Trans Ams, Firebirds, Camaros parked over at a certain house. They work on them. And I, you know, I applaud them for doing that. But one of them had, it was a woman's pink, white with pink striping. And right where, if a car could have a tramp stamp, this was a tramp stamp, on the, just above the bumper in the back. And it said, absolutely insatiable. Ah, you want that kind of advertising. Absolutely insatiable. Once we decide we are lords of our system, and no other lord should be reverenced, we fall back on our instinct, 
living in ignorance, and, and we have to pile up more and more and more of the reward to our instincts. That's why it's dissipation. That's why it's profligacy. That's why it's so defiling. Did you think 10 years ago that anybody would be talking, except the Russians in the Olympics, about trying to fake everybody out about dudes competing with the chicks? Never would have thought it would, 10 years ago. These are people who have run after the defilement because they've run away from their betters. And part of us as believers, if we understand that not only are the, you know, the god Apollo or Belmarduk have to be shown reverence, but the god of gods. Our god is called the god of gods. He's the lord of lords, king of kings. So if you reverence a king, the king of kings gets more. If you reverence the gods, the god of gods gets more. We know where our knees are. We know how to bend them. We need to learn how to bend them better in our private obligations, to our, our masters, our employers, to our husbands, to our parents, those of you who are still in the home and have to hear what the parents decide. Well, the reason they decide is because they're better than you. They're not just bigger, they're better. And again, we're not making a moral judgment not making an accuracy judgment, or uh, did their argument turn out to be the best? It's not a meritocracy of that kind. They have been given higher rules, so they're better than you. These, verse 17, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last days has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back for the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to its own vomit and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. If you read through this section, this chapter again, with the sense of the po poetry of his prose, he is not just telling you truth, he's got some English on it. He's got some emotion behind it. And this is the sort of person, like in the Jude passage, you know, Jude's a one-chapter book. It's about those people who reject authority and revile the glorious one. This is where false teachers are. Because rejecting authority is a convenient ignorance to allow instinct, their own, and your instinct, you were serving Christ until you got under this false teacher who is separating you from the obedience to your betters or the reverence and dignity of your betters, the honor of your betters anyway, so they can get you tied back to your own vomit. 
You know the pigs just like it there. You can keep a pig clean at the fair for just a bit, but then it's going to be. The word wallow, I think, was invented for pigs. We find the most comfortable place for our instincts because we are, have to fill the void that our ignorance has left. You have to have an inertial force. You have to have something getting you up to do the thing. What are you going to do with your life if you don't have your lusts? you got to have a reason. And you have a reason, you got to be free from ignorance. But if you go after your lusts, you're not going to be, you think you will be happy only when the, the meter is pegged. Insatiable for sin. I got to have more because, well, it's for me. And I want to be happy. And I'll be happy if I reward me with everything. I don't know what the gods are up to. I don't know if they're all in retirement homes. I, Douglas Adams has the Norse gods and Odin's in a retirement home in his long, dark tea time of the soul. It's a good image. I don't know what the gods are doing. I think Neil Gaiman uh, writes some about the gods. And I don't know how you would fit this into your life practically. He says, I... But think about it in other areas. Your God, minimally, your authorities, do you understand what it is to be one set under authority? Do you know your place? Do you know how to speak reverently? Because when you cut yourself off from all reverence, you're writing yourself a blank check for sin. And it's worse than being a non-Christian. Just thank God. Dear Lord, we need to be different kind of minds than we are. We need to be minds that think clearly about our humanity and our place in the cosmos and what you've created us to be. And what we speak with our mouths, what is due to those above us. Keep us, Lord, from rearranging the system to make room for our sins. Give us time to meditate on these things, Lord, and take it as seriously as the apostles, that reviling the glorious ones is a, is a crisis. We're grateful. In your son's name, amen.